Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. In this episode of the Kubrick Series Uncut, we are joined by acclaimed choreographer and performer Yolanda Snaith. As he was preparing Eyes Wide Shut, Kubrick reached out to Miss Snaith based on the unique characteristics of one of her signature works, titled Swinger. The assignment? Join the filmmaking team as the choreographer for the ambitious masked ball scene that serves as the centerpiece of the film. I thought I was going to be a visual artist. That was also another passion that I, I was very, um, uh, very passionate about visual art, and my parents were both artists, so it was kind of in the family. Um, and so I went to art school and when I started doing a degree in theatre design because I was very interested in, in theatre and costume and, and the whole world of performance. Um, and so when I was in London at art school, um, I was kind of missing in gymnastics, I guess. So, you know, I wanted to, to get involved in something that was physical and expressive. So I started going to some dance classes in London and that opened up a whole world for me because I really mm. didn't know enough about contemporary dance. I mean, when I was at school, I only really knew about ballet um, and pop dancing, you know. Um, and so, you know, I found myself in all these different classes and workshops in different forms. Um, and a lot of it was coming from the postmodern, sort of American postmodern movement, which sort of evolved um, in the 60s, kind of after Merce coming in. And before that, Martha Graham. So the lineage goes from sort of modern dance to Martha Graham and her contemporaries, and then to Merce Cunningham, and then out of Cunningham, a lot of these postmodern choreographers evolved. Um, and they did a lot of collaboration with visual art, people like Robert Rauschenberg, and there was a whole scene in, in New York that were developing these kind of quite um, sort of radical sort of, in a way, kind of rebellions against the sort of conventions and institutions of, of, um, of modern dance and ballet. When was this taking place? Um, well, that, that evolved kind of in the 60s in New York City. Um, and a lot of artists were working at a place called the Judson, Judson Church. So there were people like um, Meredith Monk, Trisha Brown, um, Simone Forte, Steve Paxton, who was my, one of my main teachers, um, and a whole load of other people. And they would, you know, it was, it was really quite a big sort of um, uh, movement away from a lot of the kind of more established conventions of performance and dance. And they started doing things, you know, in, in alternative spaces and in, in the street, sort of street uh, site-specific work. Um, so, you know, they really made a big kind of leap forward. And that sort of really hit the UK more towards the end of the 70s through some of those artists coming and teaching. And so in the late 70s and, and, and through the 80s, the dance scene in London was very influenced by that. And that's kind of where I came in because I had felt more drawn to that kind of way of working because it wasn't... You know, it, it was progressive. It was mm -hmm. taking risks, it was experimental, and and, and I, I felt a sort of real 
um, leaning towards the more kind of experimental, more um, trying to kind of move forward, trying to take the art form forward. Um, and that really influenced me. And I got involved with a particular form called contact improvisation, which was evolved by Steve Paxton. And that was a, a duet dance form, mostly duet dance form that involved a lot of weight exchange, lifting, rolling, falling, tumbling. It was, it was quite kind of acrobatic. That's where my gymnastics came in. But it was a kind of free form. So it wasn't about set choreography. It was more like a kind of dance sport. It's been described as a dance sport. And it has it, a lot of influences from martial arts, like Aikido um, in particular. And, um, so you know, I got very involved in that. It's a very sort of... Um, I guess it's a it's a very sort of full body kind of training because um, you know you're having to sort of really work with your 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 moment to moment perceptions as well as technique. So you have to learn quite a lot of skills of of how to sort of take someone else's weight safely, how to give your weight to someone else safely, um, how to fall to the ground safely. Um, so it's very skilled based, but you're also having to kind of be very, very in the moment with this kind of heightened awareness of what's happening mm-hmm. in the moment. And that sort of really changed my life, I think, really, to put it in a nutshell, getting into contact improvisation and this particular teacher, Steve Paxton, who I then went on to study with, um, that, that kind of really changed my whole perspective on what I wanted to do. And so I, I kind of, long story short, I actually shifted away from studying visual art um, and ended up studying theatre and dance at Dartington College of Arts in the UK, where Steve Paxton was teaching and another American postmodern teacher called Mary Fulkerson was teaching. Um, and those were my sort of two main um, influences, I guess. And that's kind of where it started. Um, mm. And then, yeah, and then in 1981, I was still at college, but I was having a year in London as part of my course. And Pina Bausch from, the, from Germany, the um, famous dance theatre, sort of mother of dance theatre, um, came with her company and performed in London for the first time. I think it was, yeah, the first time I think the, the company was presented in London. And, um, and I went to see two shows both of which were about four hours long with no interval um, and, and this sort of extraordinary work that was this kind of uh, merging of, of dance and theatre in this kind of really raw, emotional, very sort of human way, um, but also had a lot of surrealism in it, a lot of um, influences from, from different areas of visual art. Um, and that just blew me away. <laughs> and it was like a whole different kind of tangent in a way I mean it was so opposite from American postmodernism because it was so expressionistic and American postmodernism is much had a much more um, pure dance uh, kind of um, sort of yeah, it's a very, it's a very different aesthetic I think also culturally um, so so suddenly I was sort of opened up to this whole European world of dance theatre. And then and through the 80s, there was massive development through Europe, Europe and in the UK with what came to be termed dance theatre. And so my work really sort of began to, to sort of take more of an affinity, I guess, with that side of 
think, um, even though my grounding of my training was still very rooted in the American postmodern dance forms that I'd studied. But I, I felt that I was really able to kind of express myself and establish my voice as a choreographer in the dance theater kind of realm. And I'd also had this training in, in dance and theater. So, you know, I, I, I was sort of, yeah, I'd become sort of exposed to a lot of aspects of theater through my training. So, so incredible. Yeah. Incre- I mean, it's just <laughs> kind of like an infinite canvas of expression. And it, yeah. and, and it is interesting how you point out that a lot of these concepts first started to develop in the, the era of the late 60s and early 70s because yeah. we're, we're also doing a series on, on films from 1970 and that was a period of time yeah. where even in uh-huh. filmmaking, people were questioning, is this really the only way to do it? <laughs> you know, can, right. What, right. what can we really do yeah. with this particular genre? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think it, yeah. <laughs> so what's, wasn't it a particular piece that that caught the attention of, of Kubrick and his team? Yes, it was. And I think, interestingly, it was probably the most sort of dance theater kind of um, for real fusion, I, I, I guess, of, of theatrical elements of text and also an actor. I was integrating an actor. Um, and it was originally a stage piece that I made in 1995 called Swinger. And uh, the, the, the word swinger ended up being very controversial, the title swinger, because it has, obviously, it has these, this association with swingers. And that was kind of deliberate in a way, because I wanted this sort of taboo around the word. Um, but it probably didn't work in my favor in the end. But, <laughs> but it was um, a piece that was based on a book by Roland Barthes called A Lover's Discourse, which I had started to read sometime in the early 90s um, and just became completely obsessed with, um, partly because of the kind of psychological and sort of philosophical aspects of the writing, but also because I really identified with, with it. Um, I guess sort of on a personal level, I identified with all of these kind of states of mind and states of emotions and states of fantasy and obsession around the whole subject of love. Um, and so it took, it took a few years for me to kind of, I guess, really sort of take, uh, take the initiative to make a piece with it. But I did in, in 95 and it was a piece with an actor who was embodying the mind of the writer and, uh, and, and also, so he was yeah, embodying the mind of the writer, but also a sort of metaphorical figure for the human condition around all aspects of love and desire and fantasy and obsession and lust um, and um, all, all the sort of things that go with that infidelity, seduction, perversion, um, fetishism, all, all sorts of, I mean, just a, a big sort of soup, if you like, of yeah. all the different possible emotions and states that you could imagine you know in connection with different aspects of of love or the lover um and so so he was um on stage the whole time speaking monologues from um various different texts i mean just a, a fragment of the book it wasn't you know that the book had way more than i could possibly integrate into the piece and then the dancers 
with there were four dancers, two men and two women, and they were in a way metaphorically um, representing these different aspects um, of love and desire. Um, so they weren't sort of characters that they were. They, I mean, the, the the actor was definitely a kind of a character, but the dancers weren't characters. They were more um, working as kind of poetic met- metaphors sort of dancing and moving in and out of these different um, associations, if you like, with, with different aspects of, of, of love and sort of how they behave towards each other and, and how the different dances changed from being sometimes very sensitive um, to being more combative, um, more aggressive. So, so there was a kind of spectrum of different energetic and, and kind of um, emotional states that they were exploring mm. um, and this and the stage was um, really interesting I collaborated with a theatre designer called Robert Innes Hopkins and we worked together collaboratively through a period of research where we actually were very was very inspired by a famous um, sculptor and visual artist called Rebecca Horn and she um, is famous for doing these creating these these kind of um, these um, how, how, how to put it um, kind of um, mechanic mechanical sculptures that um, surprise you with with sudden movement. So a famous one that she made was a grand piano hanging from the ceiling, and every so often all the keys would fall out um, on a sort of almost like a kind of concertina coming out, and then they would get sucked back up into the piano. So people would be walking through the gallery and then all of a sudden this, 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 there was a noise with it. All the keys fell out of the piano and then got sucked up again. And there were others that were like mechanical arms kind of bursting out from the wall um, with a paintbrush on the end and then dipping into a pot of paint and then splattering the wall with paint and then kind of going still. And you never knew when it was going to happen. So there, was, there wasn't even a regular timing. I think somehow they were set up so the timing was kind of irregular, so you couldn't really predict when it was happening. Um, and there was also a lot of pendulums. She did, did uh, pieces with pendulums. So it was the pendulum that really sort of grabbed us um, with this whole idea of the swing, the swing of emotions from one extreme to the opposite extreme, and the, 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 the nature of time. So a lot of scenes going through the text that had to do with this sort of oscillation from one state to another and this kind of sense of um, I guess the lifespan as well you know all the different possible states that you could that you could go through in a life um, so there was a lot of references to time and to the fourth field of love that was actually mm. a line in, in on the text that the, the performance space was like the fourth field of love and this pendulum um was 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 present and it was activated by the dancers and the actor and it revolved around and it also swung from one side of the stage to the other and then there were three pieces of stage furniture a bed a table and a chair and they were all created uh, at a, a sort of a, um, acute angles so that when the, the pendulum swung, it would just skim over the surface of 
the bed that was kind of at the angle, sort of created at the angle of the trajectory of the swing. So everything was distorted and everything was um, in this kind of, yeah, sort of exaggerated and sort of distorted kind of space. Um, And then a lot of the choreography involved quite rigorously, well, very rigorously choreographed sequences where the dancers um, would would duck under the, would, would have to sort of dodge out of the way or sometimes they would roll underneath it or they would have to sort of lean back or fall back into the surface of the bed or the table so that the pendulum didn't hit them when it swung. So it, it was it was quite um, risky at times. Unfortunately, no one ever got hurt. So, we, you know, we did, did manage to... Because um, it, was, it was pretty dangerous, actually, when I look back on it. It was quite dangerous, but... Um, but that but, sounds yeah. remarkable. So, that really does. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, it was... Um, I mean, in my opinion, it was one of probably, I feel it was my most mature and uh, most developed and most sort of multi-layered work of all of my works. And even though it's you know 20, almost 25 years ago now, um, yeah, 25 years ago, I still feel that that was sort of like a peak um, for me. Um, I made a lot of work since then, but it was one of the, the top. And, and, and it was the most controversial because I really felt that I was taking a huge risk and experimenting with something new. But at that time, you know, I just, people weren't ready for it. You know, they, they weren't, a lot of the yeah. dance audience just couldn't cope with having this actor speaking all the time. They couldn't take in both. They just wanted to watch the dance. And, and then the theatre people, you know, were really drawn to the actor. And, they, and the dancers were just kind of in the way. And then there was another portion of the audience that really, really got it, you know, really sort of, were able to to absorb and and, and digest somehow the because there was a lot of information coming at me. There was verbal information and ideas and um, yeah, a lot of language as well as the language of movement. And you know, oftentimes you know it's quite hard to sort of take both of those in perceptually at the same time. So it was definitely challenging for audiences. But yeah. at the time, I felt that you know. It, it, it was heavily criticised, and then it, in, since then, particularly in the last ten years or so, there've been, particularly in the UK, have been a plethora of pieces made with text. I mean, suddenly working with text, and dance dancers and choreographers working with speaking and dancing suddenly sort of, you know, developed. But when I did it, it was like. <laughs> I mean, it sounds very sort of pretentious, but you know, I feel like when I did it, people just weren't ready for it. It was too extreme for the time, you know. Um, well, I, th- so I, think, kind of... I think that's very uh, a very valid point. Uh, I, I think when when you're an artist, as you are, and and you take take a risk like that to produce something so challenging for the audience of yeah. the time, that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and I see the same thing, honestly, in, in Kubrick's films. If you look at Kubrick's yeah. films, a lot of them were just kind of banned upon release, and only years yeah. later they go back and say, oh, no, they were onto something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which I think is what's happening with, with Eyes Wide Shut right now. Yeah. I mean, this this year, the 20th anniversary, um, and I don't think it's just that, but, I mean, I had no idea you know, how much has been written about it now, just recently. And I was just at this conference, as I, as I mentioned, um, at the beginning of this week. 
Um, and I was, I really didn't know what to expect when I wrote this paper. First time I've ever written a paper and presented it at a conference because I'm generally more in the studio, you know, working physically than standing up talking to people, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, and I also showed some of the film, parts of the film of Springer um, to sort of illustrate, you know, what, what, you know, so people had a kind of sense of what it was that Stanley saw. And, and uh, you know, people were really responded well to that. But so many different perspectives um, and lenses through which these different scholars and, and critics and um, uh, some of them PhD students, I can't remember how many talks, there must have been about 12 or 12 or 15, 12 to 15 papers. And really extraordinary, the different ways, the layers, you know, the layers of, of ways in which people, different people have analyzed the film you know, and uh, are, are kind of trying to kind of understand and get inside the, the puzzle of it, you know. Um, and I, I was just blown away. It was, it was yeah, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. You know? it, it is. I and it I, I mean, I, I found that with, with all of the films that we've been discussing for so many years on this series. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and it's almost like there's, there's the DNA of the film and, and some strands of it are severed. And, and that's yeah. where you come in. That's where you, yeah. what, what you bring to it comes in. Um, yeah. and I, I'm, I, I'm always in awe of, uh, of how Kubrick's films allow for those varied interpretations. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, so tell me about, um, uh, so it's, it's that, that piece swinger, it, it, it got mm-hmm. on their map, uh, somehow. Yeah. And what, what was, what was that first contact? Sorry, so, so that I just missed that last little bit. Oh, what was that first oh, uh, contact yeah. that they made with you? Oh, right, right. Um, so I guess, um, I don't know how, I still don't actually know how he came to, to, to hear about me or whether he was just looking at a lot of different choreographers possibly. Um, but all I know is that he requested some, some, some videos at that time. It was just VHS videos from my manager. Um, and I had a phone call from a manager saying that Stanley Kubrick, you know, has, has requested these tapes and he might call you at some time. He's interested in, in meeting with you. And I was like, wow, you know, just <laughs> totally sort of out of the blue, like, couldn't believe it. Um, and then I think about a week later or so, he did call me, and it was just quite bizarre. You know, there I was in my little sort of, my little housing co-op flat in London, my sort of very, very sort of humble, very low-rent flat in London, you know, on the phone to Stanley Kubrick, and sort of, it was just like, I can't believe this is happening to me, you know, um, and so he did, you know, ask me to come in, I think it's like the next day, he sent a car, and um, I was driven to Pinewood Studios, and um, yeah, and, and he and he sat me down in in his office, and we talked, just talked for ages, he was just very paternal, he, he remind, actually reminds me of my own dad, quite a bit I had a similar kind of presence and and I felt sort of quite at home it was really odd I didn't feel yeah it was just a very strange kind of being in some kind of familiar place and um yeah and then he just so he just 
talk to me about, you know, asking lots of questions and particularly about the film Three, because that was the film that seemed to really grab his attention. So that's kind of, you know, really how it came about. You know, as an artist, uh, obviously Kubrick must have been on your radar, but we we all have our our perceptions of who he who he was. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what was most surprising to you about him when you met him? Um, well, actually, you know, I didn't really, I mean, I guess, you know, I used to see a lot of films, but I, but some of the filmmakers that I was very interested in and that I used to see, and I, I remember sort of going to every Tarkovsky film that came out because I, mm-hmm. I really loved Tarkovsky and, um, I, I guess I was so immersed in the, the dance world and the theatre world and seeing, you know, I, whenever I would go and see something, I would go and usually kind of go to see dance because that was kind of, you know, what my, my world sort of revolved around. So I didn't really take such a big interest in film. I mean, I enjoyed going to films, but, you know, I didn't, it wasn't really on my radar actually because I, at that time, um, I guess. And even though I'd I'd seen The Shining and I'd seen a Space Odyssey, 2001 Space Odyssey and Clockwork Orange, um, along with many other films by different filmmakers, so it wasn't for me at that time. It wasn't. I'm ashamed to say it wasn't like Stanley Kubrick was sort of like jumping out to me above a whole load of other filmmakers. Um, whereas someone who was more of a film buff or a filmmaker themselves, it probably would. Mm. So, you know, I, I wasn't, really didn't have any idea what to expect because um, I didn't have any kind of notion of him uh, at that time of him being this, you know, such a... Mythic. Such a sort of cult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, whereas had it been, you know, for me, the equivalent for me would have been Pina Bausch. You know, if I'd been asked about Pina Bausch, I mean, you know, a meeting with Pina Bausch would be something I would have died for, you know, mm-hmm. because that was the, you know, the world and the person, one of the artists who kind of inspired me more than anyone. So I suppose, you know, for a film person, you know, Stanley Kubrick would be, would have been kind of like a Pina Bausch in my world, you know. So, so I didn't really, you know, you know, really have much of an expectation. And then it wasn't until I was actually working on the film that I was able to then see, um, you know, I watched some of the other films like Barry Lyndon, which I'd never seen and never heard of that because it didn't really get much of attention in the UK, flopped in the UK, actually. And Barry Lyndon was more, um, you know, took off more in France. And I was just blown away by that film. I thought that was the most extraordinary film I'd ever seen. Um, And then other films, Lolita and... uh, um, Dr. Strangelove. So I hadn't seen those films and I watched them all because Leon Vitali gave me the tapes to watch them. <laughs> I sort of gave myself this kind of crash course on, on Kubrick, you know, while, while I'm, you know, right at the beginning of that process. So, um, you know, now I'm, you know, now I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of working my way through them again, you know, sort of all the films from, I decided I'm going to watch them all again in chronological order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're they're extraordinary. They're extraordinary. They they reveal yeah. things. They reveal things to you on, on repeated viewings. Yeah. So very yeah. few filmmakers can pull that off. Um, but I'm sure you had no idea. And I've heard this from a lot of people that worked with them. Mm-hmm. You really didn't have any idea how long this process would be. I would imagine. Mm, no, <laughs> no, I didn't. I mean, no, I didn't. Um, 
I mean, and there was never, I mean, I guess I was sort of thinking, you know, possibly around three months or so. Um, sort of set date. I mean, all I know is that I postponed a production that I was due to work on, to begin work on. So I think I started working on the film with Stanley um, in maybe June of 97 or May. And then I was due to work on a production with my company um, starting probably in sort of August, September. And I, I knew I had to postpone that. So that was postponed until the beginning of the next year. And that, that was quite a big deal because you know, I had funding from the Arts Council. I had, um, with the funding from the Arts Council, there was actually a contract to, to fulfill um, the production of a work and a tour. So that all had to get postponed. So I was kind of giving myself, I guess, about six months, six or seven months I had, and that seemed to be long enough. Um, and I think the... The, the, the intention was to, to film what was, well, originally the orgy scene, but then became the mass ball scene in the end. Um, I think that there was, the plan was to film that sometime in August, September, but it ended up being November, and then the orgy wasn't actually filmed until the, the beginning of uh, 98. So, yeah, I mean, it did, did take a lot long, longer. Yeah. So I'm yeah. inter- inter- interested in where you where you started the concept of that sequence as you as you heard it described mm-hmm. by him, and yeah. how it how it evolved to what we see today. Right. Um, so the initial proposition from him was, and, and and I took this as being kind of based on the choreography that he saw, in which there was a lot of very kind of sensual kind of seductive duets and a lot of physical contact, a lot of, um, between, not just actually between men and women, but also between women and women and men and men. So it wasn't, it wasn't actually a specifically heterosexual kind of um, uh, take on love. Um, it was sort of, yeah, it was kind of very open. But um, he wanted me to create a seductive, suggestive, um, essential dance between semi-naked, with semi-naked women, or almost naked masked women, and possibly men, but it was more specifically the women, but also, you know, he did also say men too, um, it, as a kind of entertainment for a, a kind of secret meeting or secret exclusive club of uh, in in a very wealthy um, mansion of some very very important man like a politician, um, so I did kind of get this immediately get this kind of idea of you know sort of secret society sort of cult kind of um, the whole sort of world of the sort of courtesans and and uh, and sort of prostitution at the kind of very wealthy end of you know so I, I got I got a feel of the world that he was referring to. Were there so real life any... were there real life reference points that you could go to? Um trying to think. I mean I don't not really. I mean I guess there must have been I must have sort of picked up on on things and I suppose I was I, my main reference point seemed to be more kind of in sort of in China, the whole, you know, the whole geisha girl thing. And mm. um so I knew that sort of thing went on um, 
And, you know, I, I, yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I can't think, put my finger on anything in particular. Um, but, I, you know, I had an awareness of things like um, Freemasons and, uh, you know, and other kinds of cult, sort of cults, you know, in, t- in terms of sort of witchcraft and um, satanic kind of worlds. And um, so, but I didn't really at that time, I didn't actually link it with orgy because he never mentioned the word orgy. That was, and it was, it was never, you know, it was quite clear at that time that it wasn't going to be, an, it wasn't an orgy, that it was suggestive and seductive and it was entertainment. But there was never any mention of, of orgy initially. Mm. So that was never really in my mind, you know, it was, um, I mean, I guess I was thinking of, you know, striptease artists, you know, you know, hired to be hired to kind of entertain men in a private club, as opposed to kind of in a strip club, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I think I, I, there was a lot of enough in my awareness to kind of have an image of it. But, but he also mentioned these masks and, um, and, and he showed me the, the photographs by Helmut Newton as well of these naked women with high-heeled shoes on, um, you know, in this very sort of exclusive kind of aesthetic of, of, of women. Um, so, yeah, so that was the initial proposition. Um, and, he, and he also showed me um, photographs of women on his computer and kind of pointed out to me, you know, these features that were really important that the women had to look like this and they had to, you know, have, they all needed to have these kind of bodily proportions and, um, you know, very, very detailed, um, very specific what he wanted. Mm. Um, And then, and there was a a moment in Swinger in the film where a dancer, a beautiful dancer that was working with me called Desiree Congorod, who had long blonde hair, very, very beautiful face. And there was a little scene in Swinger where she's standing in something very skimpy with, in, under this beautiful light and the pendulum swinging back and forth. And he asked me about her, um, whether she might be available. And I knew that she wouldn't be available because she was working with a company in Portugal by then. Um, but, you know, that gave me quite a sense of the kind of look of, of the women he wanted from the fact that he sort of cited Desiree. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I was, you know, at the time, you know, I, I was a bit uncomfortable then with him sort of being so specific about, you know, the kind of women, you know, had to be the, the, the women who looked that way because I didn't really align with those kind of sort of views of women. Um, mm. And, um, I, you know, I felt I was a bit uncomfortable with that. But, um, yeah, I mean, he, initially, you know, he was, he was wanting me to, to find dancers, if I knew any dancers, that like, if, I, if he, he asked me if I could find, you know, a group of dancers with that kind of body type. And, and I kind of thought, well, sure, you know, I, mean, I, I didn't, I guess I didn't read the, I didn't read into it. So how, how exclusive and how picky he was going to be. Um, (laughs) So, (laughs) I mean, it really just, you know, you know, really did did, did come down to sort of them them having sort of bodies of a Barbie doll. Um, 
when it came to it. So, yeah. So did you? Mm-hmm. So did, did did you assemble that group? Was was Leon involved or any any other member of the camp? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the process was took forever. It was a very long process, and we started off with auditions for dancers in London, and uh, so we had sort of big group auditions where they did some movement. I, I led them through some movement processes. They had to be very skimply dressed. Um, I think the women had to be topless when we were doing this. Um, so we videoed those and then we videoed, photographed each dancer individually from the front, the side, the back, you know, kind of, you know, it was very, that was a very sort of um, uncomfortably cold and impersonal process in my view at the time. And Leon was there and um, he was videoing and I think there were a couple of people photographing um, so that was the first stage, but then there wasn't a single dancer that fitted the, you know, the, the required perfection <laughs> body type for Stanley. And so I was kind of like, really? But not one, <laughs> you know, when there were all these beautiful women who could move, you know, really beautiful women, but they, what they, you know, it was, I mean, then I really began to understand, you know, how obsessive he was about this and that, you know, and, and I was kind of, saying, well, isn't it important that they can move? They've got to be able to move. Um, but it was, you know, he didn't, you know, it was about it was about this particular body that had to look like that. So we moved on from dancers, and then, and then there were these, these not really, wouldn't even call them auditions, I would just call them photography sessions, where there were like coach loads of, of models, striptease artists, pin-up girls, all sorts from all over the country. I mean, it was just ridiculous. There were so many hundreds of women um, just came in and they were just photographed from topless, well, the whole bodies. I think they just had little little G-strings on and they were photographed from each side and the front and the back. There was no, there was no interview. There was no movement. It was just like, you know, looking for these very particular bodies that he wanted and, what a surreal and, process and that it was. Been. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and I was like, I was thinking, well, how am I going to work with them? I mean, it just seemed to. I realized that you know he really didn't care whether they could move or not. Mm. So you know, I I didn't know what you know. I mean, I was I was I really sort of started to have my doubts and wondering, you know, what have I got myself into here? You know, how am I going to produce what he's wanting with? with women that, you know, may not be able to move, have no dance training. And, right. um, and then, so finally, I mean, he did choose the, the, the women and, and I was just given this group of women um, to work with. And uh, there was a lot of, the time didn't seem to be an issue for him at all. So, you know, we were, we had not, it wasn't, it wasn't every single day, every week. I mean, some days, some weeks, there were more days than others. But I was kind of on call, so I, I wasn't allowed to do any other work. I was just on call for whenever he wanted me to work. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of intensive movement training with them. I was doing a lot of yoga with them um, to kind of really loose, sort of loosen them up. And a lot of, and also just finding out what they could do. I had to find out mm-hmm. how they could move. And I had to sort of try all sorts of different approaches to see what would inspire them and what would make them, you know, 
kind of motivated because some of them really weren't that interested in moving. It was too, it was too uh, physically demanding for them. They weren't used to that degree of physical work. You know, they were just used to sort of changing poses and, um, you know, just you know, doing poses for, for the camera and not movement. But there was one woman, which there was a couple, but Abigail Good, who ended up having a bigger role in the film as the mm-hmm. mysterious woman. She was in the group and, and she was great because she was just, you know, she was just really, just very naturally, um, she just had a natural ability, you know. Um, and she, so she, in a way, kind of, it was great to have her because she set the bar quite high for the others. Could you, while we're on this, while we're on this, while we're on this topic, could you settle something mm-hmm. for me? And I think I know mm-hmm. you probably know what I'm going to ask. But was was yeah. was Abigail the the woman that saves Tom Cruise, essentially, or because there's so, been some kind of confusion as to which woman that was? Yeah, there is this whole confusion, sort of by the switch. And even I don't know. So there was a woman called Julianne, who is the woman, she was one of the models in the group, but she was also playing a role. So she was the prostitute that took the overdose in uh, early on in the film at the party right. at the beginning. She, she's um, in the series. Uh, we interviewed her. Um, yeah, right. Julianne. Um, I think her name's Julianne. Yeah. Um, and so she was also initially in the, in the group of models. Um, that I was working with, and then she had that role, and then I don't know what happened, but some something happened that I, you know, I don't know about. Um, one rumor was that she had um, an injury; she had a bone spur or something, and couldn't work anymore, couldn't move anymore. Um, and then, so then she was replaced because she was originally going to be the mysterious woman, and then Stanley replaced her with Abigail. And I don't know, and there's been lots of rumors about it, and I don't know what's true and what's not true. Right. Um, so, no, I wouldn't like to say, and I don't think... Um, and, and then I saw Abigail, actually, for the first time the other day at a conference, and I haven't seen her since 1997 when we stopped working. And so that was a kind of really interesting reunion. But she seemed to think that she... Well, I think a couple of people mentioned that Julianne was very difficult for something, you know, there were some problems that she was very difficult. But um, yeah, I think this whole mystery around the switch, yeah. that it's clearly, you know, the mysterious woman's body is clearly recognizably, irrecognizably different enough. I mean, you can see differences enough to, to see that, not sure whether it's the same woman um, as when we saw Julianne as a dead body in the morgue, um, you know, with this idea that was was that the same woman. But I think, you know, it's possibly, it may also be intentional on his part, yes. because when I read the book, the, um, the Traumaville, you know, the original novel, there's this um, part of the book when, when Bill's character, who's called Friedolin, goes to the morgue to see the dead body of this mysterious Baroness D., who's called, in the, in the film, The Mysterious Woman is, is Baroness D., and he goes to the morgue and this is a passage where the only way he's going to recognize her is by his by the body because he didn't see the face because the face is masked right. so you know can is is the only way he's going to recognize is it's the woman that he was you know completely besotted with at this 
at this at the masked ball was the features of the body um, and her hair. And she had very long hair. So, you know, this whole idea of not being able to recognize a woman because her face isn't visible. So the only way you can recognize the woman is the features of the body. And then if all the women are so similar, right. you know, that, you, that it's hard to, you know, it's sort of reducing. I mean, I think that's part of the intention, intention from Stanley, sort of reducing the female body down to this, just to just a body, you know, that doesn't have a name, it doesn't have a, a, a personality, it's just another body. Um, I mean, it, it, it comes across as an extremely sexist um, view of women on the one hand, and I think it's interpreted that way a lot. But I think actually there's a deeper point to it. I think it it has to do with um, it has to do with the whole nature of desire, and uh, and, pe- and perhaps also an aspect of male sexuality. Um, yeah. But maybe his his own sexuality, maybe the way that he fantasizes in the way that he, he his own obsession so I mean there's so many different readings and so many different ways that you could interpret that but I think for me I sort of feel that there is and from working with him and going through this whole process of just choosing women because of this body this particular body this particular kind of body you know um, has something about it that has to do with the male the, you know some aspect of, of the male um, I don't know, ego or, or fantasy, fetish kind of natures. <laughs> yeah, um, I think so too. And and I and I agree with you that the that the mystery there must be intentional. And I am happy yeah. to happy to leave it a mystery. I just know that my listeners would kill me if I didn't ask your opinion on it. <laughs> but uh, and, and it was yeah. another another thing of interest that was revealed at, uh, recently. Mm-hmm. Is that the the voice of the girl belongs yes. to Kate Blanchett? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I I don't know why that was. I know Abigail mentioned. Um, I can't remember what it was now. Abigail said this the other day about why. Ah, yes, because it had to have. She she couldn't do an American accent. So Abigail was a model. She wasn't an actress. Um, and she didn't have the skill and she wasn't able to speak in a convincing American accent. And, and it had to be American because mm. the whole film was supposed to be set in New York. So, and, and Abigail actually has a very, very English, you know, proper English kind of accent. And so that's why it had to be dubbed. Um, and then the dubbing, in my view, also creates this kind of rather sort of this disembodied sort of voice, yes. you know, yes. So, which I think also intentional. So, is this voice coming from this person, or is it coming from somewhere else? And you know, again, sort of playing with, sort of distorting, you know, what what is reality, what is really happening, you know, creating a sort of more dreamlike um, feeling by this having this kind of disembodied voice coming. Mm. Um, actually, another thing on yeah. And the other thing I was thinking that came up. I mean, at the conference for me, I was trying to imagine. You know, if the film had originally been made um, with a couple, with um, say with Elizabeth Taylor or even Marilyn Monroe, if it had been made at a time when Marilyn Monroe, you know, or Elizabeth Taylor were the kind of film icon goddesses, you know, because because in a way Nicole Kidman just does have this exquisite, very very um, elegant, thin, tall, you know, elongated kind of. 
um, um, classical sort of body that, um, you know, I mean, she, she just does. She just has an incredibly beautiful body of a particular type of body. So, you know, if it had been made at a time when that, was, when that person was um, Elizabeth Taylor, with Elizabeth Taylor's body, which is much more voluptuous and, you know, bustier and curvaceous, you know, in my view, all the women would have to have been that kind of body because it just wouldn't have worked. I mean, you can't imagine, you know, something about, you know, for me, and I've always felt that there's something about the, the relationship between Nicole, um, who never has any kind of interaction, or Alice, but the wife, there's never any interaction of Alice with all these other women. She's not in that whole, I mean, it's like a completely separate world that Bill goes into, and whether it's a dream or whether it's real, you know, it's, it's always a mystery. But, yeah. I mean, I think that those women, those women also had to have a body that was as close as possible to Nicole's body, to Alice's body, because this is Bill and this is Bill's mind and this is Bill's, Bill's fantasy and his projection. And if that is the kind of, you know, he has, he already has this wife this, who has this incredibly beautiful body I and mean, he already has it. You know, so, you know, it's like you can't get any better than that. I mean, you know, she's like this trophy wife, you know. Um, and so then all the other women, you know, have to somehow match that. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any de- desire for him, you know. Um, that, that, that I yeah. think was very intentional. That makes sense to me, too. And yet these are all, and you're right there with Kubrick putting this this sequence together, but these are all ideas that, interpretations that we have after the fact during the process, yeah. Kubrick would never discuss meaning or motivation or any of that kind of stuff with you, would he? No, no, he's never. I mean, I would question him about things, but there was always like this, um, you know, this is what I want. This is how it has to be, you know. There was no discussion, you know. I mean, and, and because, you know, you get, you know, because it was Stanley Kubrick, you don't question it, you know. Um... He just had this way of, you know, he's he's just like the center of it all, you know, and, and you just, this is what he wants, and so this is what it has to be. Um, and I think also, you know, I talked to Leon a lot, because I spent a lot of time with Leon in, in rehearsals. Um, he was there a lot, and, you know, so he, he really filled me in a lot, because, you know, he knew Stanley so well. So I got to learn a lot about Stanley through Leon, Um and uh, yeah, and I had long conversations with with Leon. Yeah, Leon is extraordinary. Yeah, <laughs> what what yeah. what what he devoted yeah. his life to with in serving yeah. Yeah. Kubrick. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Did, when you were when you were uh, in these kind of workshops with the actors, rehearsals, yeah. working things out, was there a clear mandate? I mean, did you know exactly what you were supposed to? come up with or was it all kind of in the air um, I, mean, I think when I was working initially and we were making these so creating these little vignettes I call them we did a whole lot of different loads of different choreographies you know of, the, of different combinations of men and women so I had some male dancers all the all the men that I had were actually uh, trained dancers because their bodies sort of matched this kind of Vitruvian man body that, that um, Stuke Kubrick wanted, this very sort of uh, 
well-proportioned, muscular, lean kind of body type. And that, that wasn't so hard to find, but we had quite a few of them. <laughs> um, and we, we were just making, yeah, lots of short little vignettes um, on different pieces of furniture. So there might have been a trio on and around a, a couch and then on a bed mm-hmm. and the table for so different pieces of furniture and you know, duets and trios and then sort of large groups. And they were all very kind of suggestive. I mean, there was a lot of touching. I mean, not sort of touching specifically sexually, but a lot of kind of caressing and moving and, and sort of embracing and, and unembracing and kind of wrapping around and, and um, you know, very, very, yeah, very sensual and very seductive and kind of playful. And they had masks on when we were working and so all the time we were working with them in their g-strings and their high heels and their masks so you know we're really you know getting they were all getting very familiar and very comfortable with working together in that way and they were all great i mean they were really great you know with how they had to venture out of their comfort zones a bit because as models they weren't used to 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 doing that kind of thing and so um yeah, so there was a lot of um, a lot of little choreographies, and the tapes would go back. Um, so Stan, um, Leon would come and video stuff, and then he would take them back and show them to Stanley, and then I'd get feedback from Stanley with some suggestions to try this and try that, and I can't I can't remember exactly, but the sense was that he was appreciative of it and he wanted us to carry on. Um, so we just kind of carried on. We just kind of made, kept reviewing things we'd already made and then making new things. And we did that for, I don't know, six to eight weeks, maybe, maybe, maybe more. Um, and then one day he called me in and sort of, we talked about how things were going and, you know, he seemed to be very happy, but then he, he also presented me another task, which was the, the ritual, the disrobing ritual. He mm. wanted me to work on ideas for that, of a new thing. Um, and so he, his, his brief for that was it needed to be like a kind of ritual, sort of ceremony, like a ritual um, with the women all in these cloaks and coming up with some kind of structure, very, very sort of ceremonial-like structure of movements and gestures whereby they would be disrobed. So we played with that idea and I looked into lots of different kinds of religious rituals. And I, you know, I, I was very interested in that whole area anyway, because I was, had, you know, made a few pieces, quite a few pieces in my own work before, which had touched on some of those things. And so I was quite familiar with and interested in, in ritual structures and ceremony and, so we did things in in kind of lines and um, processions and uh, different sort of uh, group formations, lines facing each other or um, and circles and kind of perambulating. So we did a lot of things, and and again those tapes went back to him and he looked at them and you know made made. Um, I think we at some point we settled on a circle that he wanted it to be a circle. I think that we did settle on that. So we did arrive at a kind of a structure as it mapped out for the, for that. Um, but there was no more mention of for a few weeks, there was no more mention of the, of the other 
the sort of sensual dances. And then, um, after we'd been working on the ritual for a while, he called me in again, and he just presented me with this folder of what were like, I don't know if they were 18th century or 17th century. There were these uh, photocopies of lithographs of, of orgy scenes, so very pornographic, I mean, very, very explicit, and all sorts of different strange kind of groupings. There were a lot of monks, um, <laughs> a lot of monks and nuns mixed with sort of duchesses and ladies, and um, there was a whole orgy scene going on in a church in front of the organ, and there was... Um, quite a lot sort of in 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 parlours and, and gardens. There was one on the garden swing and in sort of four poster beds and all these different situations. And and I was just kind of shocked. I mean they were they were really very, very explicit. Um, and can I ask um, you something uh, uh, Yeah. Do you think that he had that in mind from the beginning? Or did, Well this uh, is yeah, I mean this is what it's a big question, and I was talking to Abigail about this the other day because she also felt like, you know, you know, we've been doing all this work, um, uh, you know, sort of weeks and weeks of of moving sensory and getting very familiar with each other, and it did kind of cross my mind. I thought, you know, at the time I thought, well, you know, is this what he wants? In the, you know, is this what he's been wanting all along? And has he just been buttering me up? You know, has he just been kind of you know, getting me, getting us all used to working intimately and then landing this on us. And he really wanted this all along. And, uh, you know, and I just don't know, you know, I, I really don't know whether, yeah. it, you know, whether this, whether, you know, through through the process, through his own process, he he did kind of eventually arrive at this is what it needed to be. Um, but then I can't imagine why, he would have wanted someone like me, you know, who was a, you know, who was a skilled choreographer, you know, working in this kind of area of pro- you know, progressive experimental art, to, to choreograph something that was just going to be pornographic, because right. you could just get a porn star to do that, you know. Um, so, but then when I read the the Traumaville, the this particular scene in there isn't an orgy. There's no, they're just dancing. Um, you know, Friedelin turns up at a similar kind of mansion and there are men and women, naked women, and the women were also in that, not a particular body type. It actually specifies that they were all different, you know, I think I forget the words, but you know, women of different ages and different stages of life and some, you know, very kind of young and petite and others more sort of voluptuous. But that's very much the impression. So this whole take on the orgy scene and, and the masked ball are definitely a very specific direction that he chose to go in that's mm. different from the novel. You know, it's very much more extreme than the novel. So, you know, maybe he did come to that. Maybe all of the, the, the little choreographies that I presented and, and, and when he, as he looked at them, you know, maybe he thought this just isn't going far enough. You know, that he, I just would, no. I don't think we'll ever know. I mean, maybe Leon yeah. might be the only one that could. I mean, I, I think know. it could go. I, I think it could go either way. I mean, obviously, yeah. obviously, he spent a lot of time uh, kind of absorbing 
material and what he wanted, mm-hmm. the direction he wanted to go in. So that could have been a natural mm-hmm. evolution of that. I also think mm-hmm. that some directors are very shrewd. And if they would have shown you yeah. that folder on first meeting, <laughs> right. you, you, know, right. you would have read out the door. No, 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 the person yeah. For this. yeah. 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 Very possibly. Yeah. So tell but me, I mean, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, but it did seem odd that, um, and also when I watched the, the film now, um, that it could have been both. I mean, he could have included some of the, the movement, some of the, the kind of dances that we did, which weren't, I mean, I wouldn't even call them dances. They were choreographies, choreographies of kind of erotic movement, but not explicit erotic movement. I mean, that could have lived in the orgy scene as well. You know, there could have been, you know, all the simulated sex that there is, and there could have been these little moments happening as well. I mean, I could, I personally could see that having been there in the film without it taking away from the extremity, you know, the extremeness of the of the of the orgy. But he chose to not have any of that, um, and I don't know whether that's because I ended up not being involved when the orgy was shot because. I when I chose not to, and also because I had my company production that you know I didn't want to postpone it again because that would have been quite detrimental to the company if I'd done that. Um, so but you were on that, you were on really, set for for some of the shooting, weren't you? I was I was on set. Well, I was there for the whole time for the the shooting of the masked ball of the of the the ritual, the circle, mm-hmm. the disrobing of the women. But when they actually shot the, the orgy, when he goes upstairs, when they're actually, you know, in the in the library in the orgy, I wasn't involved in that. It's the most them. it's the most unusual set piece. So I'm trying to I I'd like to get a feeling from you. You're mm-hmm. in this opulent mansion. You are mm-hmm. next to film's most revered director and the yeah. world's biggest movie star. <laughs> yeah. This is not yeah. a situation and a bunch of naked people. This is not a situation yeah, yeah. that many people find themselves in. No. I, yeah. I know. Yeah. Um, so, sorry, what's the question? <laughs> There's not a question. I just, I, I can't imagine that this, the, oh. your sense of what, what am I, what am I, where am I? What am I doing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, actually, that part of it, um, when we actually finally got to shooting the the mask ball scene in Elverdon Hall, um, that those three weeks, I think it was three weeks or, or near to three weeks, were the most extraordinary. And uh, I mean, it's distances. It, it took a long time to kind of get that out of my system because mm. it was just incredibly immersive. I mean, I found the whole experience of being there, even though there was a lot of waiting, a lot of repetition, but being there in that space with all of those, I mean, it was incredibly powerful and emotional and sort of, um, and partly because of the, the, the incense as well, you know, there's this yeah. smell of incense the whole time, which I, I just actually love that smell, but you know, it's very intoxicating. And then when we were shooting, they played um, Jocelyn Cook's Backward Priest music. So, you know, that was always there. We didn't shoot the, the sequence inside. And you were essential in, in choosing that piece, weren't you? Yes, yes, I was. Um, 
it was one of the pieces of music that I was playing when we were creating the different um, the different ritual choreographies and different ideas. And I um, I tried lots of different music because I, I've always found music really great for creating different kind of atmospheres. Not that I mm-hmm. necessarily sort of choreograph things to music. I mean, sometimes I do, but I don't always. But um, so I had lots of different things that I associated with ritual. I had church organ music and I had Gregorian chants and I had some other, I was playing lots of other sort of weird spooky music. And and then there was this album by Jocelyn Cook called Deluge, which she'd originally written the music for a, a Canadian dance company called Overtigo. And I saw that production, which blew me away. And so I bought the album. And so I used to play that music a lot in rehearsals. And um, and so that particular piece, The Backward Priest, to me just seemed like perfect. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just absolutely created the world, you know. And then I was right, because when Stanley saw it, he was like, what's that? I've got to, ha- I've got to meet that choreo, <laughs> that, that uh, composer. That's amazing, you know. And so... That's how that happened. Um, and meanwhile, that music is so, echoing throughout the mansion when you're shooting these sequences. Yes, yes, wow. yes. So that's been being played. Um, so it was incredibly immersive. You know, it was a very, it was like being in this, this a little bit like when I made performances and I was performing in my own pieces, which for me always were about kind of transporting people into a different world. Um, and when I was performing them, I, I I always felt as if I was transported. There was always this kind of heightened sense of yeah. awareness, and you know, and it was like that. It was like sort of being in some kind of performance, um, and just yeah, and just so much to kind of pay attention to, and you know, um, so much. I, I learned so much about filmmaking just being there for that for that scene, you know, and all the different ways that it was shot. Um, um, now, now I know that um, he was yeah. very. I know that he was very precise about uh, certain things that he wanted. But was were there mm. moments also when he would say, "Try this"? Yeah, yeah, there were. I mean, we had, um, yeah, we had this kind of sequence um, pretty much rehearsed. So you know, they were the models were able to do these very simple actions. I mean, there's nothing really that complicated. I mean, simple actions of, of kneeling down and folding forwards and then, you know, and then coming up and going up to standing. But it, they all had to be, you know, really, they all had to be able to feel each other's timing and to, to know exactly, you know, how mm-hmm. to be together in unison. Um, but then at one day, at a certain point, Stanley said, uh, just wanted me to try passing a kiss, this moment when they pass a kiss. So that was something that was completely new. That that particular part of the choreography was created on set. So, wow. you know, everything kind of stopped while we created this passing kiss thing that he had this idea. And, you know, it was really like I, I felt that, you know, as we were working on that scene, you know, he's kind of developing it in his mind. It's not as if we had this kind of totally fixed thing that then we were going to go in and, and methodically, you know, kind of just shoot it in a very technical way. You know, he was really, you know, yeah, I really felt like he was only really able to see, to, to get what he wanted 
by being there with us all and, and having us try things. So, yeah, that was the main thing. There was this passing kiss. But there was a lot of different things to do with altering the timing, um, just, you know, slight alterations of the timing of how long they stayed down, folded forward, and how long they took. So, yeah, it was, it was everything was kind of tweaked according to what he wanted to see sort of then and there. Um, and then, and then also the, uh, yeah, the relationship between the choreography of the women and all the other elements, um, that for Stanley had to be synchronized in a very particular way. So, which he didn't actually know that until he was in front of the screen, you know, watching the things being filmed and, and finding out what it was he wanted to see. And it came down to these kind of very difficult sort of timings or synchronicities between, you know, how the direction the smoke was moving in from coming out of the incense burner mm-hmm. and the timing of the, the handheld camera, you know, in relation to the moment, you know, particular moments in the choreography. Like, you know, he, no one else could see what it was he wanted. But, you know, one time it just came down to the smoke. You know, the smoke had to be moving in the right direction and the right amount at this particular point in the choreography. Um, And, you know, we would do that over and over again until he got it exactly as he wanted it. And with something that you can't really control, you can't really control the movement of smoke in the way that you can control every other aspect of the choreography. So, you know, it was things like that I had no idea of you know, that would come up. Um, and those were the kind of things that became, um, you know, just, just these other layers, these kind of layers of elements that he needed to to see these different details and the relationship between different de- details yeah. um, and the timing of it. You know, it was, yeah, very obsessive. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah, there, I, I can't yeah. imagine that there was a take where Kubrick would say, "Okay, good enough." <laughs> yeah, no, he wasn't no, that yeah. kind of guy. No. Uh, yeah. So, so when you when you departed the set, were, were, did you have any other interactions with him after that? Um, no, not after once I'd finished that scene. Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think I was quite clear with him. Because, we, I mean, some people interpreted it as a falling out, but I didn't really feel that we fell out. I mean, there was no, I didn't sort of sense any kind of resentment or bitterness from him. You know, it, you know, it was very clear that I said to him that this is, this is, I don't really want to choreograph pornography. And actually, I'm not going to be available, you know, after the end of this year anyway. And, and they also had to find different models who would be willing to perform, you know, simulated sex. Um, and the, the rate of pay was going to have to be higher because the models that I was working with were contracted, you know, in a, at a certain rate of pay that did not include doing anything specifically sexual. That was right. like not part of their contract. So there was a whole issue around the models and, and you know, and the rate of pay and their, their agents. And, you know, he had to find other women to be part of that scene. So the Audi scene kind of just kind of put on, got put on hold. And it, you know, I was very clear that, you know, I really didn't want to work on that, actually. Um, and, yeah, I just, uh, yeah, I, would, I, I, you know, I, I, 
yeah, I didn't, and and I and I know that, and I don't think, I mean, yeah, as far as I know, there wasn't another choreographer working on it, but I think amongst the group of new women that were working on it, there was a dancer or, or, or a woman who was a dancer. But when I'm looking at it, I mean, it really, it really is just, I mean, you just, I mean, all of the information and all of the kind of things that are happening, you know, could be taken from, not that I've ever really kind of watched in pornography but I'm sure that they you know and, and also from some of the images you know it doesn't really need a, a, cont- a choreographer of contemporary dance to create that mm-hmm. um, but I do see very much in the composition of the groupings and the whole arrangement of people in the room that these different different ways that models and, and men are are kind of composed around pieces of furniture um, I mean, it, it is very, you know, you know, it, it does have, um, it does lend itself to a lot of different associations with some of these kind of images um, in visual in visual art, um, you know, which, you know, that's very much, I can tell that's very much sort of Stan Lee's visual aesthetic, that it's very composed, mm-hmm. it's very choreographed. Um, but I think as a filmmaker and as a director, he was very choreographic. Um, I mean, everything that he was doing with the timing of the camera in relation to the movement, in relation to the smoke, in relation to the space was choreographic, you know. So he, he, he was, in a way, he was the ultimate master choreographer, you know. And, and I was, even though, I mean, I think he needed me, definitely needed me to, and I, that's why I call it, you know, I felt like I was more of a choreographic liaison because I was, working as a kind of assistant to him in communicating with the models what he wanted and working with them to get what he wanted. But when it came down to it, you know, he was really the master choreographer. Yeah. I think there is a very choreographic aspect to any kind of film directing. Yeah, his his so, compositions are incredibly yeah. exact, exacting. I mean, even back yeah. to the days when he was a still photographer. Yeah, um, yeah, it's amazing. So when you when this uh, this my my last question to you, you've been so generous yeah. with your time. You've been so amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you uh, the 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 movie goes on and it eventually wraps, and of course the the uh, word of mouth is what is the sex movie that Kubrick is making, and then Kubrick passes. Mm-hmm. I mean, wh- where was your head at during that whole time? You had to be curious what what what, what was happening with the movie. Um, yeah, interesting. Was well, a lot happened to me in my life um, over that time. Um, so when I finished working on the movie, I went on to make a piece of my company called Blind Faith, which, which um, definitely my experience with working with Stanley had a huge influence on on what I made. Um, and yeah, that when I look at it now, it's like it's so obvious that I had all this imagery and all this. It was very ritualistic, and um, mm. I even had the set had a red carpet, and and it, and I yeah, I was I was drawing a lot of on a lot of very Renaissance imagery, and there was you know semi-naked bodies and no actual nudity. But anyway, it was quite clear that I was still processing um, a lot of what I'd experienced in the Masked Ball was coming through in that piece. Um, and that piece ended up being one of the most successful pieces I've made. So I, I um, 
it won a, a, an award, um, this French award called um, the, it's called the Bagnolet Award, um, and then we did a lot of touring with that. So you know, I made this piece that then became probably one of the most successful pieces in terms of um, audience response and touring and you know recognition. Mm. After and I'm sure that having worked with Stanley Kubrick um, and the fact that you know that was on a lot of the publicity you know, that <laughs> definitely helped kind of pull an audience you know so I was really really busy the whole of 1998 I was really busy with that and then I ended up and then just after that in 1999 just before um, the movie came out I had my child so mm. um, I my whole life sort of ch- shifted. Um, so a lot of changes in my own life. So I had my son. And so when so when Stanley Kubrick died, I mean, I was just, I, I was, I, I, you know, obviously, I mean, I, I was just so shocked. And I just thought it was so tragic. Um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was just shocked. Um, and then I, I was invited to the premiere. So I did go to the premiere. So I saw a lot of people, I saw Leon there and a lot of people at the premiere and... Um, I was, yeah, I was also kind of a lot, like a lot of people, I was kind of underwhelmed a bit by the film and I've definitely grown to love it more and more every time I watched it and with time and distance, um, you know, I, every time I watch it, I experience it differently or I mm. see new things. Um, but I thought it was just incredibly tragic, you know, that he died, you know, seems, you know, relatively young and, I thought it was also really ironic that, you know, he he had so many phobias about flying. He wouldn't fly and he wouldn't let his um, his chauffeur drive faster than 30 miles an hour because he was, you know, he said it was dangerous. And, and then he had this whole security thing around his house, his home, um, you know, and all this fear around death. And then he just died of a heart attack because also he didn't really kind of, you know, get, treated or he didn't believe in doctors right. or any certain kinds of doctors he you know and it just seemed so so yeah so sort of tragic and so it was and and I and also even though I I, I put, kind of assumed that I probably wouldn't ever work with Stanley Kubrick again because I'd heard that you know he doesn't he didn't really work with people only certain people he worked with more than once you know, like um, Peter Sellers, he worked with Morton or Leon, but oftentimes, you know, he would pull in pe- people specifically for that particular film, and then he would he would go on to make another film. It'd be a whole load of different people that were relevant to that particular subject that he was working on. It wasn't so much for him about continuing collaborative relationships. You know, he would pull in whoever he needed for for each particular film. So, you know, but I thought. You know, it was always a little hope that maybe I'd work with Stanley Kubrick again, you know. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I was. And I also felt, having been inside of the film, you know, I also could feel, you know, all the kind of misrepresentation of um, of what the film was going to be and all the hype around Tom and Nicole, you know, and everyone thought they were going to see Tom and Nicole having sex scenes and you know, and, and so there was all this kind of hype that was very destructive or, you know, very misrepresentative and of of what the film actually was. And so, you know, a lot of people were underwhelmed because they had this idea of what they thought it was going to be. And then what, what it was, was was just not that at all. Um, so no one was really seeing the film for what it was. They were yeah. just seeing, 
you know, something that wasn't, that didn't live up to their fantasies about what it was going to be. Um, and it's only, it's quite interesting that now it's really feels like people are really seeing it for what it was as a whole generation later, you know. In some um, ways, it, in some ways, it's one of the most mysterious of Kubrick's movies for me. But yeah. it, it, and, and actually, from, it's it's always been one of my favorites of his as well. Yeah. Uh, I uh-huh. mean, I find Barry Lyndon very emotional. It, yeah. Just just uh-huh. emotional in that it's so tightly controlled, and you're waiting for a release in Barry Lyndon. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. that itself yeah. is an emo- emotional journey. But I yeah. initially. Just in terms of my film fandom, I I did not respond to Kubrick films, period, and it <laughs> it, it took some time, and then I yeah. thought that I realized no, I don't know how to watch Kubrick films. I don't you don't yeah. watch a Kubrick film like you do, you know, someone else, yeah. Joe Schmo. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. and now I, I I adore him. I've adored him for a long, long time. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's extraordinary work. Yeah, I think it's it is also quite subjective. For each person, because actually, even though 2001 Space Odyssey is meant to be, you know, one of the, his most famous, or one of, I mean, they're all famous, but, you know, that's actually the film that I don't enjoy so much. I mean, I did enjoy it, but I didn't connect with it anything mm-hmm. like as much as Barry Lyndon or The Shining. The Shining, I just think, is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Always one of my, when I think of Kubrick, that's the film I remember immediately. It's the first film that comes to my mind. Actually, before even before Eyes Wide Shut, that I worked on, it's just I just think that's an incredible film, and um, and Lolita, I'm, I think, is, you know, those you. are my favorites. <laughs> I'm with you. The Shining and Eyes yeah. Wide Shut, those are those are my two yeah. that I always yeah. return to. Yeah. Well, yeah. you have yeah. been so beautiful to to give me your time <laughs> uh, like this. It's been it, a pleasure. Right yeah. before Christmas too. I cannot thank you enough. <laughs> Oh, you're welcome. No, it's really, um, it's a pleasure. I love talking about it.